Imagine it's the 1960s. You're having a cigarette over lunch with your friends. Patsy Cline is playing on the radio. Every table at the restaurant has someone smoking. In fact, almost half the working population is actively smoking. Fast forward a few decades. You've been unable to live like you did when you were young. You can hardly get a full breath in. Just walking your dog around the block is an enormous struggle. You've recently been discharged from the hospital after needing to wear an uncomfortable BiPAP mask for days that helped you breathe. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, is a progressive, non-curative, and debilitating disease that is one of the most common reasons for hospitalization and the third leading cause of death worldwide. Today, our patient has COPD and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Every Breath You Take and is all about long-term management of COPD. All right, on to our minute physiology. COPD is characterized by small airway disease with lung parenchymal destruction. Smoking or other inhaled irritants can cause a number of histopathologic changes in the epithelial lining of the bronchioles, including mucous gland hyperplasia and narrowing of the lumen, which results in the clinical entity known as chronic bronchitis. Further, the alveoli can become damaged and rupture, leading to the formation of large sacs called bulli. This is characteristic of emphysema. Damage to the alveoli also leads to collapse of the bronchioles due to the loss of the alveoli tethering them open. Our pulmonary arterioles and capillaries also respond with smooth muscle hyperplasia, which can result in chronic hypoxic vasoconstriction. After a COPD patient takes a breath in, the constricted and collapsible small airways and decreased lung compliance traps air from being completely exhaled, resulting in hyperinflation. Try taking a breath in, then take additional breaths in and out on top of what you've already taken in. Tough, isn't it? Because of the permanent damage and changes to the airways and alveoli, COPD patients often have no or incomplete reversibility in their airway obstruction after bronchodilators. This is one of the features that makes it different from the reactive airways in asthma. COPD is an incredibly complex and involved disease. Today, we will focus on the long-term management strategies for COPD patients to reduce mortality, alleviate symptoms, and prevent exacerbations. Now, let's begin with the number of investigations used to prognosticate and guide therapy. The diagnosis of COPD is made with spirometry and pulmonary function testing. The diagnosis requires an FEV1 to FEC ratio of less than 0.7 that is incompletely reversible by a bronchodilator. The severity of the airflow limitation is based on the GOLD criteria, which uses the FEV1 post-bronchodilator. A person with mild limitation has an FEV1 over 80% predicted, moderate between 50 to 79%, severe from 30 to 49%, and very severe under 30%. Alongside your GOLD criteria, you can also use the number of exacerbations and the patient's subjective dyspnea rating on the MRC dyspnea scale to place them on the GOLD ABCD criteria, a useful tool for prognostication. 
In Canada, we also use the COPD assessment test, or CAT score, based on the symptoms and number of exacerbations to escalate therapy. Mild COPD has a CAT score of less than 10. Moderate COPD has a CAT score greater than 10 with a low risk for exacerbations. And a severe COPD has a CAT score greater than 10 with a high risk of exacerbations. Alright, now let's talk about the treatment options. First, smoking cessation. There is very little in the way of treatment that provides mortality benefit in COPD. However, smoking cessation is the most effective means of providing mortality benefit, as well as slowing progression of COPD. A large component of your management plan should be dedicated to counseling, medical, and psychosocial cessation aids, and education to the patient. Pharmacologic smoking cessation aids include nicotine replacements, such as gum or patches, varenicycline, bupropion, and nortriptyline. E-cigarettes should not be considered in smoking cessation, given their own significant risk of harm. Both pharmacologic and behavioral therapies have a similar efficacy. However, combination therapy demonstrates an improved cessation rate. Next, vaccines. With COPD, you want to prevent the patient from having as many exacerbations as possible. One of the keys to this is up-to-date vaccinations. Every COPD patient should get their annual flu shot, which has evidence of reducing the rate of exacerbations. Pneumococcus vaccines will also reduce the rate of community-acquired pneumonia, a common cause of exacerbations. Patients over 65 should receive both the Prevnar, or PCV13, and Pneumovax, or PPSV23. Younger patients with an FEV1 less than 40% predicted or other significant comorbidities should receive the PPSV23 or Pneumovax. Now let's talk about one of the mainstays of treatment, inhalers. Remember that inhalers do not provide mortality benefit. They are largely for symptom management, but also can decrease exacerbations as well as hospitalizations and may improve or help maintain a patient's FEV1. We have four major categories of puffers. Beta agonist, for which there are long-acting and short-acting. Antimuscarinic agents, for which there are also long-acting and short-acting. Inhaled corticosteroids and methylxanthine. If that last one doesn't sound familiar to you, it's because methylxanthines are no longer used due to significant side effects so we're not going to be discussing them in this podcast. Beta agonist puffers stimulate the beta-2 receptors. Antimuscarinic agents block acetylcholine from attaching to the M3 muscarinic receptors in the airway. Both of these result in bronchodilation. Beta agonists can cause sinus tachycardia or tremors. Antimuscarinic agents often cause a dry mouth. Now, Short-acting beta agonists or antimuscarinic agents, also known as SABAs or SAMAs, are largely used for quick relief of rapid onset of dyspnea as a rescue inhaler. An example of a SABA is salbutamol, otherwise known as Ventolin, and for SAMA, ipratropium or Atrovent. The combination of the two better alleviates symptoms than monotherapy, however, it should not be used as a mainstay of treatment and the patient is very symptomatic. 
Their longer-acting counterparts are aptly named long-acting beta agonists, or LABAs, and long-acting anti-muscarinic agents, or LAMAs. Both LABA and LAMAs improve FEV1 and symptoms. However, LAMAs are superior to LABAs in reducing exacerbation rates. The combination of the two, however, is superior to LAMA alone, and both together better alleviate symptoms, reduce rate of exacerbations, and improve the patient's FEV1. The bronchodilators that we have discussed thus far are your foundation of treatment. Inhaled corticosteroids, otherwise known as ICS, should be considered as an adjunct therapy in the appropriate patient population. Inhaled corticosteroids are the only puffers that are not bronchodilators. On their own, ICS does not provide any benefit whatsoever, and based on the TORCH trial, might even be harmful with an increased risk of pneumonia. However, where ICS works well is in combination with the LAMA and ALABA in triple therapy. This becomes very effective in reducing exacerbation rates as well as improving lung function. As an interesting side note, serum eosinophils may predict effectiveness of the ICS, with counts greater than 300 having a positive correlation with effectiveness. The main adverse effects of ICS is a potentially increased risk of pneumonia, which is more pronounced in patients over 55 active smokers, individuals with a significant exacerbation history or a BMI less than 25, individuals who are significantly symptomatic with a poor MRC score, who have severe airflow limitations, or less than 2% serum eosinophils. We'll talk about escalating therapy in a bit. However, essentially, the indications for ICS initiation include a history of hospitalizations for COPD exacerbations, two or more exacerbations per year, that required steroids even without hospitalization, serum eosinophils over 300, or a history of asthma, repeated pneumonias, a history of mycobacterial infection, or serum eosinophils less than 100 may be contraindications. So, how do we escalate therapy? Your approach to long-term management with puffers should be the following, based on the Canadian Thoracic Society 2017 guidelines. If the patient has a low CAT score or mild COPD, then just starting with a SABA alone on an as-needed or PRN basis may be reasonable. If the patient continues to be symptomatic, then the patient should be started on a LAMA. If the patient has a CAT score greater than 10 on your initial visit, you may want to start with a LAMA alone and increase to a LAMA-LABA combination if they are having exacerbations. Should they continue to have exacerbations despite dual therapy, or remain significantly symptomatic, escalate your therapy to triple therapy with a LAMA-LABA and ICS combination. SABAs or SAMAs can be used at all stages for immediate symptomatic relief. The goal criteria for escalating therapy is similar. If a patient has less than two exacerbations and has never been hospitalized, and has minimal to no symptoms, start with a SABA alone. If the patient is symptomatic but still has a very mild exacerbation history, move on to a LAMA. However, if the patient is hospitalized with an exacerbation, then a LAMA-LABA dual combination therapy should be used. If the patient is hospitalized or has many exacerbations, greater than two, and is significantly symptomatic, add on an ICS for a full triple therapy. 
Within the gold criteria, this is known as the gold ABCD classification criteria. Now, it is important to remember that even though often we are considering stepping up inhaler therapy, we can also consider stepping down. If a patient is stable, for instance, consider stepping down from triple therapy to dual therapy and monitor for recurrence of symptoms or an increase in exacerbations. Besides inhalers, there are other non-inhaler medical therapies. Azithromycin, for instance, can reduce exacerbations and should be prescribed to those who are exacerbation-prone as well as actively smoking. The dose is either 250 mg per day or 500 mg three times a week. The phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor, also known as reflumilast, also reduces the rate of exacerbations requiring systemic steroid therapy and slightly increases the patient's FEV1. Mucolytics may reduce recovery time post-exacerbation in selected patients with chronic bronchitis as well as significant sputum production. And of course, alpha-1 antitrypsin augmentation is only indicated in patients with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Unfortunately, a subset of patients will progress to require home oxygen. In Canada, home oxygen is indicated if the arterial partial pressure of oxygen is less than 55 millimeters of mercury or less than 60 millimeters of mercury with evidence of right heart failure or erythrocytosis. Oxygen saturation persistently under 88%, even on ambulation, is another indication. Once the patient is prescribed home oxygen, they should be reassessed in two to three months in order to determine its ongoing utility. Oxygen therapy in those who remain hypoxic has been demonstrated to have mortality benefit. Another type of respiratory support is non-invasive ventilation, or NIV. NIV is traditionally known for its role in exacerbations. However, it may be considered in chronic management of certain COPD patients. Patients that might benefit from home NIV include patients who have pronounced daytime hypercapnia, stable but very severe COPD, or recent hospitalization. Understated part of therapy, and a very important part of therapy, is pulmonary rehabilitation, particularly after an exacerbation. Pulmonary rehabilitation can reduce dyspnea and improve exercise tolerance. The therapies consist of patient-tailored therapies, including exercise training, education, and behavioral modification, with the goal of improving both the patient's physical and psychological condition. The symptomatic benefit from pulmonary rehabilitation is larger than any inhaler and should be a foundation of treatment. Surgical and bronchoscopic options are uncommonly used. However, they do exist for COPD. Lung reduction surgery occurs when parts of the lung is resected to reduce hyperinflation and therefore improve the mechanical efficiency of the respiratory muscles. This can be considered in patients with severe upper lobe emphysema who have already tried pulmonary rehabilitation but still have low exercise capacity. Bolectomy is another older type of surgery that has been used to reduce dyspnea. In this surgery, emphysematous bullae are resected, which decompresses the adjacent parenchyma. There are a few rarely used bronchoscopic procedures to reduce thoracic volume in order to improve mechanical efficiency of the respiratory muscles. These include endobronchial valve placement and thermal vapor ablation. However, these are not commonly used and required much further study in order to be recommended. So what about lung transplants? 
transplantation may be an option in very severe COPD. However, this is a relatively uncommon intervention, generally in part due to the limitation of supply. Over 70% of COPD transplants are double lung transplants. However, these once again do not prolong survival, but rather improve health status and functional capacity. Criteria for suitable candidates for lung transplantation include an FEV1 less than 25% predicted, a PaCO2 of greater than 55 millimeters of mercury, and elevated pulmonary arterial pressures with evidence of right heart failure. Patients with chronic hypercarbia and progressive deterioration requiring long-term oxygen therapy have poorer prognoses and should be higher on the transplant list. Unfortunately, there are a subset of COPD patients who will require palliative care therapy in the advanced stages of their disease. Early involvement of palliative care with the patient's consent is recommended in these cases. Palliative care can help support the patient in terms of symptom management. For instance, they may help with opiate therapy or home oxygen in order to relieve their sensation of dyspnea. Nutritional support for malnourished patients can also improve respiratory muscle strength. Further, palliative care in the outpatient setting can help with advanced care planning for patients who are in the advanced stages of their disease. Now, time for a medicine minute. The type A personality, referred to being perfectionist, rigid, and time-conscious, is a term invented by the tobacco industry. This was to suggest that people with type A personalities were more likely to smoke cigarettes, but it was their stressful personality traits that caused heart disease, rather than the cigarettes. This came in response to mounting concerns over litigation once the health effects of cigarettes were coming to light in the 1950s. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Every Breath You Take on Long-Term Management of COPD. This episode was written by Dr. Cheyenne Kassirian, PGY2 Internal Medicine, and was reviewed by Dr. Corey Yamashita, Respirologist, and Dr. Jeffrey Yu, General Internal Medicine. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. Sound editing by Nathan Dutnick. The Internet Work Series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Karinopoulos, and Zara Morelli. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.